Please welcome this evening's moderator, film critic and host of the public radio show, The Treatment, Elvis Mitchell. Good afternoon. Welcome to Meet the Filmmaker here at the Apple Store in Soho. Yeah, and um, let's first of all congratulate the cast of the next Ghostbusters right here. This is so exciting for me. I never got to meet people before they made the movie. But before we talk to these guys, uh, let's take a look at a trailer from the movie we're here to talk about, Ghostbusters. It will haunt you every night. Whatever it is, no one should have to encounter that kind of evil. Except you girls, I think you can handle it. Oh, oh good, thanks. We have a gift. We see what no one else is willing to see. We do things others can't do. Ghostbusters. If there's a paranormal problem, we're the ones to answer the call. Hello. That's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. What do we think of these Ghostbusters? Are they to be taken seriously? You take that aisle, I'll take the far one. Okay, you sweaty freaks. I'm about to save you from this ghost. Okay, so I don't know if it was a race thing or a lady thing, but I'm mad as hell. There's a bigger picture at hand here. Someone is creating a device that amplifies paranormal activity. We're gonna need a bigger boat. Hey guys, check it out. Kevin, come inside. I was born to be a Ghostbuster, all right? Oh man, that's so not good. Something big is gonna happen. The word we're looking for is apocalypse. You want to this? Yeah! The government's trying to claim the event isn't supernatural. We don't want a panic. We don't want mass hysteria. Get out of the city! Get out of the city! I will kick the unliving crap out of you! And you! Especially you! Hey! Don't move! You gotta, uh... No, I'm tired. No, no, Listen. I'm just gonna go ahead and take off. How about that? I, I don't really think that's a good idea. No, going to take off. Don't piss off the ghost. Really? So let's meet the filmmaker, ladies and gentlemen, it's Paul Feig. Um, right out to the New York Ghostbusters. Here. They're here for you, they're auditioning for the next movie. The best. You guys are the best, they are truly the best. Let me ask you, because I just noticed in this, that subway sign says Seward. Yes. Which is a street in Detroit. Uh, that, that, you're right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's, here's the thing. When, we've, when somebody snuck a, or leaked a, f a photo of that, that set when we were in production, and everybody gave me a hard time in New York, it's not even a real thing. You know you're not allowed to portray an actual subway stop in a movie. You have to make up the name of it. Really? Yes. I don't know why, but well, the subway uh, sue or something? What's I guess the subway is very, uh, very uh, tight about its uh, <laughs> PR, for, apparently. So, so it was it was not a mistake. Everyone who remembers that press release from a year and a half ago. <laughs> well, That's I'm sure the stuff you hang on to. When you're I'm sure these guys remember it. Um, <laughs> let me ask you because one of the things that we talked about this before, I have to ask you: your movies are so often about somebody who has too much self-awareness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and and. 
how did you end up applying that to this? Because it really is sort of crucial to the way you conceive your characters. Well, what, to me, the heart of this movie is the relationship between Aaron and Abby, and really the the the, uh, the story of Aaron, who is this person who. And when she was a kid, saw a ghost multiple times in her room, and it was very real, and yet nobody believed her. Parents didn't believe her, nobody did. And so they just said she was crazy, basically, and they put her in therapy, and the kids at school found out, made fun of her. And the only person that believed her was her best friend, Abby. So she's very kind of aware of how the world perceives her, and she's desperate to legitimize herself. And so that's why when we first meet her in the beginning of the movie, she hit a point where she was just tired of being called crazy, and went into the, the, the legitimate science world, and gets pulled back into this world. And then when she finds out that the ghosts are real, it validates her whole life, but then nobody believes them because they post it online and everybody thinks it's just a fake video. And then they go to a rock concert and they see one, but a whole crowd sees it, but then they just assume it's probably a prop from a, you know, from the, the rock concert. And then when they finally have one, it escapes. And then when the mayor says, oh no, we believe you, we know it's happening, but we're gonna have to make you look like frauds, like you're crazy. It's, it's, it's all about like, do you need to have actual validation from people you don't know in order to feel like you are a whole person? You know, and, and basically it drives her crazy. She doesn't have that and then Abby's cool with it or you know, makes herself cool with it. So, so there is a self-awareness there and a, and a striving to be legitimate. Which could be freaks and geeks or bridesmaids or anything you've done. Yeah, I just, I like, the, you know, I love underdogs, and we're all underdogs in so many different ways, um, and part of it is just, like, how does the world see us, and, and trying to, you know, do we care, how much do we put into wanting to um, be validated by, by the world around us, and, and are we satisfied by that, you know, and just like in Freaks and Geeks, it's trying not to get beat up every day and trying to get through the day with your dignity intact. And this could be this too, by the way. Yeah, oh my God, totally, totally. And there's a scene in the uh, extras. We had much more movie. I mean, my, for the first cut of this movie was three hours and three and a half hours long. That was my my cut of it. The, my, the, the editor's assembly was four hours and 15 minutes long. So, so it's the heaven's gate of Ghostbusters. Exactly, there you go. <laughs> in more ways than one. But, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, so we had all this extra story story um, and then we had a lot more stuff between Aaron and Abby and so I had to cut this I cut out this big sequence uh, where Aaron actually goes back to the school to try to get her job back from the dean and she gets thrown out and then they have like kind of a breakup breakup scene between Aaron and Abby where um, you know she says to Abby look I know you don't care if people think you're crazy but I do and then Abby gets to say I how do you think I don't care I've been called a weirdo my whole life but the fact I get to work with my friends and discover cool stuff gets me through it so you know again it, it's that just wanting to um, wanting to find your group and, and not be rejected by people that you admire. Well, sure, and, and, but this brings up a question for me. How do you make a movie like that and you're rebooting this where you get, have to make them underdogs who are sympathetic because everybody goes into the movie wanting to like the Ghostbusters. You don't have the discovery. The well, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to reboot it because to make it a sequel, and I really debated this, um, but you know, A, it was so much time had gone by, and B, I knew Bill Murray didn't want to play Venkman anymore, uh, so we would have had Dan and Ernie, which would have been great, but at the same time, it just felt like they're going to be handed technology, and they're going to be living in a world that has seen all these ghost attacks already, so it's not that big of a stretch for people to go to not believe them, versus if we kind of do an origin story, here are these true believers who are really fringe because they believe in something that is inherently considered to be crazy and yet they know it's right and then we get to see a world discover ghosts for the first time. That felt more 
like we had more chance to, to to explore character and to set up a new team and to have an origin story by doing that, you know. And, and whether we were right or wrong, I don't know. It's just the only way I knew how to tell the story, and, and also to bring it to a new generation since it's been really 25 years since the since part two uh, came out. Yeah, because I was wondering too, because it's got it's got to feel like you want people to be on the side of the Ghostbusters, but also to understand that ghosts are unusual. Yeah, I mean, you know, the great thing about the Ghostbusters, they were always outsiders. I mean, you know, in the original movie, they were more kind of appreciated because the ghost problem was very apparent. Um, I don't know, I, again, it, it just goes into my love of telling underdog stories. I, I can only kind of process something, a story through trying to figure out how, how people are dealing with the world and trying to find their place in the world. Uh, so that's, that's, that's what I did. Who was the first of the actors you talked to? Who did you get first for the movie? Uh, ironically, it was Kate McKinnon. Um, yeah, because I had made the announcement I wanted to work with funny women for this role, or for the movie, and, um, and Kate had, was just, had just done an interview, and she had heard that and said, you know, one of her dreams in life is to be a Ghostbuster. And, so, and I love Kate, and I've been trying to figure out something to do with her, because I'm really good friends with Steve Higgins, who runs SNL, and so I hang out the show all the time, and I got to know Kate and would hang out with her parties, and she's so funny. Uh, and so we had her come in just to, not even to read a script. We were still kind of writing the script at that point. And, um, and just was asking her what she wanted to do. And she's so funny, just her physicality. She was like, yeah, well, I'd be kind of, and she's like sitting on the desk like this and all that stuff. And I was just like, oh man, you're just like, this is great. You know, we knew we wanted to have this one kind of really weird character of the, the engineer. And so I was like, she's in. Like the minute she walked out, I was like, okay, she's in. So let's now build the cast around her because the biggest thing you need to do when you do a movie, any kind of comedy, especially an ensemble comedy is make sure that everybody you cast has a different comedic energy so that you don't have similar people. And uh, so then we kind of built out from there. And it wasn't a shoe-in that I was going to cast either Melissa or Kristen. I really kind of went into this, like, let's just see who's going to be right for it. But then Melissa had been kind of calling, like, she was really interested in doing it. And I was just finishing up posts on Spy, and she was so good in Spy that it was like, okay, I'd be crazy not to put her in there. <laughs> you know, and also she had brings that cool energy of, like, to be the leader of, of the of the troupe. Uh, and then Kristen was really the last person I cast. Um, really? Yeah, yeah, because... I saw Leslie Jones the the first weekend that she had done Weekend up, Update on SNL. I was just watching TV with my wife, and was like, "Who is that woman?" Because she had never been on before. You know, I had to kind of dig in to find out she was a writer, and then you know, obviously a comedian forever. And by the time she finished her weekend update, I was like, she's in the movie. I, I, gotta, I have to meet her. I mean, I called my friend uh, uh, Allison Jones, my casting director, uh, who does everything that I do, and said, can she act? And she's like, oh, yeah, she, she's really good. Like, I've auditioned her and stuff. So then I came to New York, and we had drinks. It was ironically the... I had drinks with her right after she found out she was going to be made uh, a yeah, cast member. And so she was really happy about that. And, and we had kind of a stiff meeting for the first... 15 minutes and then when we both found out that we were we had started in stand-up together we both started doing stand-up in the 80s and she had just kept going and doing it and I had done it and then I stopped and became an actor and then I went behind the camera and all that and so we really bonded the minute we had that connection just we had like the greatest time we were there for hours laughing and talking and then yeah, it was just she was a shoe-in and then finally Kristen, because it feels like almost you were fighting your instincts on this a little bit. Yeah, I wanted to be hard on it because I, I you know, I, I when I cast it, I always like since I like I never set out to use Melissa in any of my movies. It's not like I go no like kidding, really? No. So after Bridesmaids you would think I don't know what I'm doing, but she's in it next. No, it was more like I've gotta find something else for her, but then when like the script for the heat came in, um, 
I, they told me that Sandra Bullock wanted to do it. And so I read it, and, you know, I was reading it, and I was like, oh, this is so good. But who can play this other part? And I was going through these other people, and then, like, about 20 pages in, it's like, wait a minute, Melissa. And, like, started reading it with her in mind. is like, oh, she could kill this. So that's what it was. And then Spy, when I wrote Spy, I didn't think she was going to be available because I was going to try to shoot it originally in the fall, and she was on her show. show. Yeah. So, but then she was over at my house one night with Ben, her husband, and uh, she said, what are you writing? I said, oh, I wrote this Spy script I'm really excited about. She's like, can I read that? Yes, Melissa McCarthy, giant star. Sure, of course. And she called me the very next morning and said, "Like, I love this. I got to do this." And so I was like, "Well, if you want to do it, I'll hold off production, and you know, until you're off the off the show." And then, yeah. So I, I just, I always want, I, I always want to face everything. Look, I have like kind of my core team of, of people that I use all the time, especially in, in, in supporting roles who I know are strong. But I always want the project to to and the characters to sort of tell me who would be the best for it. And I like to experiment with using new people, but then, you know, again, when somebody's kind of so in sync with you creatively, and, and, and you know, it, we, Melissa and I just, we love the exact same type of humor, and we like how far we can push it, but we also like to keep it grounded in reality as far as the character goes, and then we play, play beyond that. Because it's, it's funny you talk about Melissa as the leader, because your movies are also, too, about two people fighting to be leader. <laughs> it's Rose Byrne and Melissa yeah. in, in in Spy. It's it's Sandra and Melissa in <laughs> in in the, the Heat, and it's kind of everybody fighting to be the boss in Bridesmaid. That is, yeah, that's interesting. I never I never thought of that, Elvis. You found a a running theme in my work. <laughs> what what issues am I having in my life? Yeah, what's that? your exactly. problem with strong women, man? Yeah, what's wrong me, What's I, wrong with you? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's finally out. <laughs> I think for me, it's always it's more about stories about professionals um, who haven't quite found their peers. Uh, but also professionals who kind of ostracize in their own profession. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what I, you know, because I, I hate it for, you know, for so long, I feel like any movie portraying a professional woman is all about she has to pick between her job or her happiness, you know. And, and it's such a F you to women of like, you got to pick one, ladies. It's like, I know so many women that I know are professional professionals and they love their job and some of them god forbid actually balance family and love and their job and they are fully happy and developed um and so i just like stories about female friendship uh because all my friends you know so many of them are women and their friendships are so strong and interesting and fun to be around and and you don't see it you didn't you know don't tend to see it portrayed a lot it's always you know fighting over a man or trying to get a man and it's you know those that's fine those movies exist but i <laughs> i think ladies have enough of those now i think we can you know be more relevant in that that way, so uh, yeah, so it's it just kind of fun showing those. And what I love about the heat, you know, something like the heat is about two women who love their jobs, and the only problem is they haven't kind of found their support group because you know they're they're considered weirdos among their group, you know. And then same, you know, in a, in a way with spy, it's somebody who's undervalued themselves. And then you know, here's she's good at her job, and then Rose Byrne is well, kind of good at her job. She gets duped, you know, even though her job is selling a nuclear bomb, but still a profession's a profession, as they say. Uh, and then, yeah, and then you get into the Ghostbusters world, which just seemed very natural to me. But I just like that, because it's, it's really, a, unfortunately, a novel thing to show. Women who are really good at their jobs, who, because of the kind of hierarchical situation, are kind of ostracized for that. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and again, I, I, you know, you don't get movies about men, like, having to make that choice and, and being... 
you know, this is the problem with the portrayals of women is the one in the movies about guys is usually the wife at home, you know, being mad that he's off saving the world, you know, and like yeah, it's either us who save the world, but not both. Yeah, exactly. Which oh, what a great role for a woman because you're not at all villainous to the rest of the audience, you know. Like you're supposed to be saving the world. Stay home and have dinner. It's like okay, well, so she's we're supposed to not like her, I guess. Um, should we? Uh, yeah, let's. Let's take a look at the, we're talking about meeting the cast, let's meet the cast. Yeah, so it's a, one of our, a little clip from one of our featurettes on the, uh, on the Blu-ray. When you get four people in those lead roles like that, who are so not only funny but sweet and wonderful, you just laugh the whole time. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> You're the one with one wonton. <laughs> <laughs> They're all sort of just these four misfits that find each other, which I love that kind of story. Future poster, guys. <laughs> Hopper, get it. We got so lucky with the four of us. It's felt right since day one. Minor snippet of a very long, uh, one of our very long featurettes that we have on the. And there are quite a few. And uh, how many deleted scenes are there for people? Because you're talking about how long your version of the movie is. It must have been hard to lose some of that stuff. Yeah, it was. I mean, that's the great thing about DVDs and, and, and Blu rays is that it used to be when, as a filmmaker, like if you lost something or had to come something out, it just was gone forever. And you're like, oh, we can't lose this. So you would tend to try to keep stuff in and then screw up the movie by doing that. But now you go like, okay, we can put in the DVD extras. Now, where there's a, I mean, there's a ton of deleted scenes on this. I don't even know how many, but uh, I mean, there's over three hours worth of extras on this. And that's not even including if you watch the movie with the commentary track, there's two different commentary tracks. So if we added that up, you're getting into, I feel like I'm on QVC all of a sudden. Like suddenly was, I apologize. I'm not trying to do the hard sell. I'm just very proud of it because we put all this stuff on. And then we have all these alt versions of scenes that are in the movie because, yeah, because we have so many different jokes and performances and, and, and you know, improvs that we did that uh, we had versions of the scene that we would pop in and out. And so some of them I like so much, I just wanted to include on the DVD so you can, uh, so you can see those too. Uh, and then um, we have a ton of gag reels on there, two gag reels, and then we do the thing called uh, Jokes of Plenty, which is because we have so many alternate jokes for each character, pretty much each character gets their own kind of alternate jokes where we just literally string all the jokes together in quick cutting, and so you get to get to hear lots of jokes that didn't make the cut. <laughs> well, as you were saying this, I wonder which joke play much better than you thought they ended up in the movie? Which joke kind of surprised you, kind of going bang? Gosh, I mean, I'm telling you, I'm always so surprised at what jokes were. Because, you know, you really? especially when you go into your first test screening, and there's so many things you're like, this is going to kill. And then it either doesn't or it gets a weird response. And then things you're like, I don't know, is this too whatever? And that's the one that kind of kills. So you're always kind of recalibrating yourself. That's why I'm so dependent on, on these uh, test screenings. Because, yeah, you know, it's... You're making, you're not making a movie in a vacuum, but you're definitely making a movie amongst yourselves. And you, you know, we all have our senses, own senses of humor. Also, all of us working in comedy, we're kind of comedy aficionados in the sense of that's all we deal with all day. We so we hear comedy, we're we're always working on it and looking at other people's, and we know the formulas of comedy. And so what happens is you start to then really respond to things that go against that formula. 
which is good sometimes, but then sometimes you can be a little too meta or hip for the room. And so you, we're, we're deconstructing so much sometimes in our brains that we don't realize that there are jokes and things that people really like or that, that are just more, I don't want to say comfort food, but they're just... They, they are funny to people in a way where we're like, oh, we've seen that before. It's like, no, but if you do it in a different way. So it's constantly, you know, kind of confronting your own ego, uh, which you have to do. I mean, it, comedy is such a slippery thing because the minute you make the speech of like, I know what's funny and don't you tell me, like, just check out. Just hit the, you know, hit the button and go retire in the leisure world because you are not going to, you're not going to please an audience. You're literally have ended your career or on your way to ending your career because comedy changes constantly. You know, and what people think is funny, think is funny. The core of what's funny is usually funny if it's based on human behavior. It's just the delivery system. Sometimes it's just how you deliver a joke or how you word a joke. Can, it can either be a corny dad joke or that same thing delivered in a different way or written in a different way can suddenly become the hippest, newest, funniest thing that anybody's ever seen. It's just you have to you have to get feedback from the people around you and you have to listen to the audience because you are making a movie for the audience. You're not making a movie for anybody else. You're not making it for us. Hopefully we are happy with it too, but they will tell you. And if I do test screenings, and sometimes they're jokes I'll hang on to for three different test screenings going like, well, maybe that crowd didn't get it. <laughs> They don't. I'm telling you, if you get a group of people, you get a group of like three or 400 people who don't know you, and that's the secret. Don't do friends and family screenings. I'm very against those because you get all your friends who are, you know, they like you or they're in the business and they all like crack up at stuff and then you put in front of a real audience and they just sit there like silently. Um, again, you know, see earlier part of the, the, of the conversation because they're in the business or whatever. Uh, but they'll, they'll tell you and you got to listen. Because one of the things I was thinking about as you were saying that is you got to be open to that experience because I know, I'm sure you guys know, but Bill Murray in the first Ghostbusters improvised 80% of the performance. Mm. I mean, those like it's Miller. Anything you think is being a great Ghostbusters line, it's probably 90% that he improvised that line. But once you cast the actors who are playing characters, they can come up with that stuff and it doesn't sink the movie and doesn't throw you out. Yeah, no, totally, because you want that. I mean, to me, look, we, Katie Dibble and I, like, kill ourselves to make sure that we write the funniest yeah, you possible script. Yeah, make the, sure we write the funniest script we can. And, you know, because you also want to, you don't want to, if you show up on the day and everybody's brain dead, if you just shoot what you have, at least we've got something that, you know, is, is going to be good. But it's such a waste to me to have all these amazingly talented people and funny people and get on the set and go, just say the lines as I wrote them, you know, let's get out of here. That's when the magic starts to happen because. You know, it's like when you go out with your friends, you don't go like, all right, everybody, uh, what funny stories have we all prepared? And then you sit there and you read your funny story. <laughs> Why you have fun with your friends is because you're in the moment and you're making jokes and you're feeding off of what's happening in the moment. And, just, you know, the, the waiter does something funny and like that gets you on a tear and suddenly you go off on this tangent. And that's what, to me, what movie making should be because we get there, we're killing ourselves to get to that set and all this money and all this crew and everything. So to get there and suddenly go like, all right, let's just do it and get out of here versus we're taping this. You know, filming it, hopefully. Um, <laughs> make very cheap movies these days. Uh, you know, now let's let it start to happen. And then, you know, then we really play. And then we re then you have all these options. And what you're getting is something that feels very in the moment, very natural, and has that energy where people feel like you, they're hanging with their friends. And that's really the goal of, of when you make comedy, whether it's a movie or TV show, just somehow make people feel like they're hanging with a group of people they want to be with, who they really love and, and, and enjoy laughing with. Because as you were talking, one of the things I was thinking about, which makes the original such a 
well, not such a, but a, and unique property. And this too is, it's also got to be scary. I mean, yeah. you've got to, and, and talk a little bit about sort of balancing that. Well, you've got the, the, the stuff that reminds people it's, a, it's also a ghost story. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, actually, this, this leads nicely into our next clip. Like, yeah, he's you. a pro. My God. <laughs> I've known this man for so long. Um, yeah. <laughs> You know, it's it's a weird balance because, especially for like comedy, scary comedy, yeah. because yeah, it, it's you just kind of know what you want to have it be, and so much of it is kind of in the writing and the setup, you know, of of how we're gonna get into something, how we're gonna make it unexpected, or just make it sort of uh, spookier than it should be. And it's about settings and um, really how you present it. Uh, it's a very hard thing to kind of describe. I'm sure like John Carpenter or somebody could could be much more eloquent about this, but I don't do scary movies. It's weird when you when you want to balance the comedy, you want to make sure that it's, it's scary enough, but it's still fun at the same time. Um, but for me, it was a lot of using actual people to do to do these things. Most of our ghosts are not CGI, they're enhanced by CGI, but they are performers who were there hanging on wires, wearing these light suits and full costume so that they could actually interact with the actors and the actors could be kind of freaked out by them and they could scare the actors and, and it, it went into making it very real versus... Um, look at know, the tennis ball. Yeah, the tennis ball on the stake, right. Be scared and now here comes the tennis ball. Oh, look out. Um, but check this out. <laughs> That's why he does what I do. And I, I, and I can't. <laughs> so every person you see is an actual human being who is doing the actual action that was on screen, and that blew my brain. Oh my God. They were flipping and so realistic and they gave us so much energy when they were fighting with us that it's easy to feed off of that and be just as aggressive. And she fires! Boom! God help me, I don't know what it says about me, but I really love all that stun stuff. Yeah, I mean, shout out to uh, Walter Garcia, my stunt coordinator, who is just the most unbelievable fight coordinator and rigor and all that you've ever seen. And that stunt team killed themselves for days doing that.
I could actually just watch that, and I mean, because that's just so incredible to watch that stuff. And it even takes me back to something we talked about a lot before: Chaplin and Harold Lloyd, and just the idea of how sort of physical danger creates the same kind of tension that comedy does. Oh, total! I mean, bodies in motion to me is like the greatest kind of you know action sequences you can have. You know, that's why. I never wanted it to get too wrapped up in CG because then there's there's no f- physicality to it. In your movie, as in the original, New York is a character, but you also, when the people are possessed, they basically go back to the period almost of the first ghost. They go back to the seventies, really. Yeah, well, we I just loved the idea, and it, it, it didn't even we didn't even get to play with it as much as we wanted to because we ran out of money to make that sequence even bigger. Oh, so you, you ran out of money on this movie, okay? Yeah, yeah. That that fight sequence could have been three times as long as you see from some of the stunts you didn't see. Uh, not that it had to be, but I just loved the idea of old scary New York coming back of, of every era like sort of the, the the scariest people from New York history all being pulled in by our bad guy and then fighting the Ghostbusters it was a really fun idea and, and honestly when you see the raw footage and on the on the blu-ray we that whole we do the long version of the fight scene with none of the special effects so you can get to see all the stunt work but you also see all the costume work that that went into it and there's just amazing costume work of everybody from there's flappers and you know pilgrims and zoot suit and yeah zoot suit guy all that stuff and uh, I, I'm just really proud of that uh, um, our, our Customer was just amazing. Uh, Jeff Curlin, who is a legend. If you look up his name, he's done every big movie. He just finished Chris Nolan's uh, uh, Dunkirk. So wow, there you go. Well, uh, but I, I guess too, also the idea that for you to hold to Ghostbusters, New York, and what New York can be, and how ominous a, a character it can be, has to be part of this too, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, again, like you say, New York is a character in this movie, and you know, even when we, we were gonna we were gonna have to shoot in Boston because of the tax break, which was just a bigger tax break so that you can get here. I, moments of like, well, maybe we should set it in Boston. It's like you can't. It's just heresy to take New York out of, and, and these people would kill me, <laughs> all my friends. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's such it's such a part of it because New York is. Well, New York's you know the greatest city in the world, obviously, but it's it's this density of New York and and all the people kind of you know how we're all on top of each other in a weird way, and it it has seems it has its own ghosts because there's been so many people here, and this the spirit of the of the city is so alive that you, it's not that big of a stretch to go, yeah, this is the place where it could all happen, paranormal and otherwise. But also the idea of making New York scary again, which in the movies we grew up on, those New York was a scary place. Oh my gosh, yeah. That, that, that was always the, you know, the fun of what could happen in New York. And I mean, poor New York's been destroyed, destroyed so many times, but it always comes back, see? So that's why we love this city. And I think people in some weird way kind of miss that. Even people who weren't born when New York was that kind of place, think, gee, what happened to the New York where you didn't know what was going to happen to you? And the idea of just New York being an unpredictable place is key to your conception. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, it's just the whole idea of the paranormal and an invasion of ghosts. Everything about it is just is 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 strange if you think about it. But that's what's so alluring, also. And you also you've changed expectations by having these women in it. But we should talk lead to the next clip about your introduction of another. <laughs> character to the film. Yes, Mr. Chris Hemsworth. Uh, yes, exactly, I know. He's handsome, he's a great actor, turns out he's funny, and he can dance too, so 
let's just all give up, guys. It's it's over. <laughs> we all lost the genetic lottery oh, except for Chris. Yeah, <laughs> I made my peace with it. But um, <laughs> but what was your first conversation with him like? I mean, because because the role clearly wasn't written for him. Yeah, we wrote it just kind of wanting this sort of like slacker kind of guy who answers an ad in the from the paper and doesn't really care about his job and understand what's going on. And figured we'd cast one of our, you know, funny friends who was in all, you know, who work in our movies. And then my agent is a, has is Chris's agent, and he said, "Hey, one day he said Chris is really interested in possibly doing something in Ghostbusters." And then like, Katie and I looked at each other like, "He couldn't be the receptionist, could he?" It's like he'll never do that. And then sent him the script, and he wanted to do it. And then I had lunch with him one day, and he was so funny and charming. But I also was like, okay, first of all, I want you to play Australian because I never get to see you be yourself. And he's so funny in real life. And he loved that because he never gets to do it. And then, you know, but then the night before he started shooting, he came in, you know, we'd already been up and running for about six weeks. And he came in, he had like three weeks he could spare. And he came to my room and he was really nervous. He's like, I don't know if I can do this. I mean, they're so funny and I don't do improv and I know you do all this ad-libbing and stuff. I said, Chris, don't worry. We got you covered. We're going to write so many jokes. Katie's there. I'm writing them. We'll have other people writing jokes too, so do not worry. So he shows up on the set and sits down with them for that the, the big interview, so the job interview scene and he starts improving with them and he's hilarious. I mean, the whole Mike Hat thing, that's him. He came up with that. It's like, what the hell? And even like, the, you know, the glasses, having no glasses, it's, he came into the very first scene we did and he's getting all these reflection off of the glasses. I was like, oh, I can't digitally paint out all those shots. It's going to cost me a fortune. So I said, just take the glasses out, take the glass out of his lens, you know, out of his glasses. So he's in the scene and that's like, in the middle of it, he just like reaches through and scratches his eye and we thought it was so funny. <laughs> and then the girls went crazy for it and then we started playing back and forth and it just became this whole character thing. And uh, that, that, but that goes back to what we were saying earlier, like when you get to the set, that wasn't scripted, but my God, why would you not then ride that wave? And we had, you know, that's another thing on the, on the, on the Blu-ray is that um, there's a 15 minute long version of that scene with tons of those extra back and forths. And it's really fun. It's bananas. It's just nuts. But, uh, um, but also within, if I may set up the next clip. <laughs> yes, you may. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Elvis. Uh, is the, the dance number we did with Chris where he possesses the army is not in the, is not in the, theatrical, we have a little nod to it, but he freezes them, but it's in the extended, which we have his dance number where he possesses the, uh, the, the National Guard and the cops and makes them dance.
What can't he do? <laughs> Funny is that clip play just suddenly women just start showing up out of nowhere just to watch him <laughs> yeah, even do it. Weird how that happens. Yeah. That was one of the few days my wife came to the set and hung out all day. It was the day that Chris was dancing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> True story. I think that's what God made therapy. But anyway. Yeah, um, I, exactly. I, I think what we should do now is to go to the audience for questions. And yeah. we have, I guess, microphones here if there are questions. So were there uh, some scenes or some jokes that were so funny that everybody kept breaking up and you had a hard time getting them filmed. And what did, it, what did you have to do to get them to calm down enough to get the lines read? <laughs> well, that, I mean, that happens so much on our set, it's kind of amazing. Um, I have to say, when we did the, the, the job interview with Kristen and Melissa and Kate interviewing Chris, honestly, when it got into the whole Mike Cat thing, that's... Kristen breaks. Kristen is the greatest breaker because she, you see it, because she thinks she's hiding it at first. So she, hmm, you'll hear this like, hmm, and this little, her sides of her mouth go up. And then, and then if you hear her go, oh no, then you know the next five minutes is going to be her trying to talk and falling apart and trying to talk and falling apart. And I just let, I let them just kind of work their way through it. There's, when I first started making movies, what happens, like, if an actor starts to break or, or, or you know, fall apart or, or screw up, the cameraman would pan the camera off them or they'd tip the camera up. And I remember going like, what are you doing? Stop, like, panned out. Like, I had to lecture every time I work with the camera guys, like, never take the camera off them, never cut. Because to me, I think that's, Hilarious! I, it makes me very happy, and sometimes I can use it in the movie. I've had done movies, a movie called Undercompany Miners. <laughs> I yes. saw it. Yeah, thank you so much. Where we redid a whole scene because the kids couldn't stop laughing, and it just became this really charming thing that kind of worked in the movie. And so I'm always looking for, you know, sometimes you just need something, something to cut away to, or some kind of realistic thing. So I'll let them kind of just run through it, and it's usually like somebody on the other on the crew, like, oh, it's a, it's usually one of our cameramen. We have a very He's the greatest, uh, a guy named Casey, who's, but he's the grouchiest man in the world, and he admits it, too. And you'll always hear him in the middle of everybody laughing, having fun. He's like, still rolling. So I was like, okay, <laughs> yes. I know. We know we're still rolling. Thank you so much. Well, you actually, that's an interesting point, because something we see in your movies that we don't often see. In comedies, people don't laugh. No. It's just somehow they're making the movies funny, but they can't admit to the idea that in the real life that, or in the, the characters that laugh in the movie. Well, it, it's, fun, it's, fun, it's funny, and actually, it's one of the reasons why it's very hard to do a movie about stand-up comedians or about funny people being funny and people think they're funny is if somebody's doing something crazy and everybody and we know it's funny and, and everybody and the movie around them is going like what are you doing stop it you're being ridiculous we think they're funny if somebody does something funny in a movie and everybody in the movie around them goes ah ha ha and they all laugh we immediately go like well that wasn't that funny and it's this weird psychology it's the hardest thing in the world to do and that's why when somebody sends me a movie about like you know yeah about a funny guy or he's a stand up comedian it's like oh this is fraught with peril man and cuz i actually did it oh my god i <laughs> when i was uh, when i was an actor i did i was a regular on a tv show called Dirty Dancing. Yes, there was a TV series. Uh, very short-lived. Well, somebody had to do Patrick Swayze. In well, TV yeah, show. exactly. No, I remember how when they would do like the cartoon version of like you know the Brady Bunch or the Partridge or, Family or Ghostbusters. Well, yeah, <laughs> but they would yeah, well they would add like a mystical like a like the flying talking bird or the dancing pandas. <laughs> well, the, I was the flying talking bird in in in, in, in whatever it was called what, Dirty Dancing because they invented this. Bellhop, crazy bellhop who wanted to be a stand-up comedian. And so that was my story. <laughs> and 
So it's it was so ridiculous, my God. So I, it starts with me like auditioning for the talent show, and I'm doing my stand-up act, and it's bombing. And then Baby, played by Melora Hardin, who I ended up working with on The Office, who's fantastic, comes up and coaches me how to be funny. <laughs> and it's this ridiculous sequence where like, well, stand up and do all this stuff, and poor Melora, and we're both doing like, this doesn't work at all. Okay, and she's team. And then the end thing they do, like I'm in the review for for the for the Catskills crowd. And I come up and I start telling these jokes, and they let me write my own jokes, and they were really bad. But they kept cutting to the audience, like going, ah, ha, ha. And then we cut some one shot of this guy. He's like, ha, ah, like pounding the table. It's like, oh, God. And my dad was watching the show. He goes, like, that joke wasn't funny. Why is that guy laughing? It's like, I don't know. I got killed by editing. So, yes, if you're going to have somebody be funny in a movie, make everybody around them think they're not funny. But what we see that in your movies that people are kind of laughing sometimes. I mean, I think that's part yeah. of the, 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 the reality. Well, I like the camaraderie of laughter and the camaraderie of people making each other, you know, having fun with each other is a very sweet thing. And that is something that's really, that you really depend on the chemistry of the actors to have. Because even if I script kind of people sitting around a table having fun, that's when you really want to have that kind of create a party or create a, a you know, a dinner night for people where they are natural and they start joking around and I just usually get those cameras and I cross shoot and get everybody on camera and then just, you know, just start rolling and just like, you know, play with these lines but go to these, you know, let it guide you where it will and make each other laugh and they're, you know, because that's what they do behind the camera. I mean, our sets are so much fun. Half the time I'm like, Oh, you got like I'm kind of listening to them and like they're doing some crazy bit like you know Kristen and Melissa and it's like wait wait do that in front of the camera and, and you know don't don't do it there <laughs> make each other laugh and uh, that 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 the stuff that just resonates with an audience so much because one of the things that runs through movies too and we see it a little bit actually Kate gets to do it and it's often Melissa in the movies somebody who gets basically just has an appetite for life yeah. and is having fun in their life and yeah. often Melissa's played the character but here it's Kate mm -hmm. yeah no it's I like the. Uh, the the person who you, everybody thinks is weird, who as the movie goes on, you realize they're kind of the most well-adjusted person in the room because they just live by their own code. And I love that. I mean, those are my favorite kind of weirdos, uh, you know, and I feel like that's all of us in our own way. We have things that we are good at, and, and it, we're, but we don't kind of, you know, conform to the norm or we don't act the way that people think we should. And I, there's a feeling we all feel like we're kind of underappreciated because we're being held to some other, somebody else's standard. And so, you know, I I love the idea that some people feel that way in my movies and then other characters are just like, screw that, here I am, you know, take, take me at my, as I am. Yeah, just that idea that somebody can take joy out of life yeah. and, and, and we get to love those characters immediately because we can see that these are characters who are completely in control of their own destinies in the way the other characters are not. Yeah, and that's why I think so many people have really embraced the Holtzman character because, you know, she's... She's a genius inventor. She's just lives by her own rules. She's like perplexing in a really fantastic way. And you know, that's how we should all we should all strive to be Holtzman in our lives. Now I've learned something. Yeah, your question. Oh, a couple of questions. My gosh, this you were had your hand up next. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask, like, what what do you see as the defining characteristics in whatever project you take on? What do you look for? At, as the end goal in a lot of your things? Like, what makes it a Paul Feig joint, in a sense? <laughs> nice. I like a joint. Um, you know what it is? I, it, I want it to be about 
underdogs. I have a real hard time with, like, occasionally I get sent scripts of, like, you know, he's the coolest high-powered lawyer in New York, and he has a downfall. It's like, I, I can't relate to that character. I don't even know what happens when that person has a bad day, <laughs> you know? So it's like, what are things that I can relate to and what the audience can relate to character-wise? What can work as almost a drama underneath all the comedy? And that's really what I work the hardest on, is making sure that the character arcs and the story tracks like a drama, and then we go, okay, now what's the funniest kind of way we can tell these things, and, and the way we can, you know, portray these characters. And the final thing for me is just, will it be fun? Like, I want, I, I always say to my people in my company, I said, I want my movies to feel like a party at the end of the day, even if, you're, if it's a violent party, or if it's, you know, you go through all these things, or some things happen, or there's a lot of action. Like, I still want everybody to have fun. That's why I always want, like, the end credits to, like, they have a great song and there's great graphics and stuff going on. I just want, I want, I, you know, life's too crazy to not have good comedy and not to just laugh and, and have fun and have people escape. I like old fashioned escapement, you know, kind of escapism where you go to a theater and you have a great time and you can kind of let the cares go. go. That's what I like and that's why I like when I hear people, you know, will watch my movies over and over again over the course of the years. I want it to be the thing that you go to when you are depressed. You're like, oh, I just need to cheer up, like watch this movie. And I love hearing people like stumble across them on cable and you get caught up in it. That's, those are my favorite movies in the world, but it's like, oh my God, there it is. And like suddenly two hours go by and you watch it again. So I, I strive to try to do that. Well, we can't do this without having a question from an actual Ghostbuster. So here's one right here in the front. Ah, there's my friend right Hello. there. Uh, so you're handed Ghostbusters, which is this Property. 30 year plus uh, beloved film. Yep. Uh, were there any guidelines imposed on you when you were creating this new film? And then what elements of the original films were important for you to keep? Mm. And then is there anything you would have liked to include that you weren't able to? Um, gosh, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, I guess I'll take the middle part first because, you know, when Katie Dibble and I decided to do this, it was like, well, how do we face this? Because I knew we wanted to reboot it and all that, but pretty quickly we said, all right, well, but what did the studio say about when you say you want to reboot it, rather? Because we've been hearing about sequels for basically the last 10 years. They were very excited. I mean, this was something that nobody wanted to do. No, no, no comedy director wanted to touch because it is. It's canon. It's really like, you know, when they first brought it to me, I turned it down twice because, like, I'm not touching that. That's like a classic movie. Why would I possibly touch that? But then once you realize the, the, the world of it and the idea behind it, the, you know, funny people fighting the paranormal with technology is a great idea. It's the to me it's the ultimate way to do a superhero movie because they are superheroes but they are human beings like us. You know, they can be hurt. You can still break their leg and they're going to go and you can't punch them through a building and they come out the other side and shake their head, you know. Uh, and so so they just really wanted wanted the franchise to to or the idea of the franchise to come back. And and when I said I wanted to reboot it and, and with with women in the lead roles, you know, it was Amy Pascal at the time. She just jumped for joy. She was really excited about that. So, you know, but then we said, okay, well, it's a classic thing and there's so much iconic, you know, there's so many iconic bits of it. What would we, if we went to see this movie, we didn't make it, what would we be really sad that we didn't see? And pretty quickly that 
you know, that list comes apparent. You want to see the, I want to see the Ecto-1. I want the proton packs and the traps and, you know, and slime and all that. And the logo. Yeah, and the logo, my God, and the song. And, I mean, there's no way you can make this movie without playing the song. I, like, there would be an uprising, myself included. Is there ever a conversation people say, we can't put the song in, that's too much of a touchstone, we want this to be something? No, different. no, I, it, was, it, it was the opposite where you go, I, I mean, for me, I said, because I've seen movies, based, I don't want to say what they were, but like I'm based on a classic property that had an iconic song, and you're like they have an opening sequence, and then here come the credits, and you're like, here it comes, and you're waiting, and they don't play it, and you're just like, Ugh! like you can't, like your heart can't start pounding or something. So it's like that's when we did the opening sequence. It's like when he gets he's hanging from the stairwell, we got to go right into that song, and it's gonna be Ray's song. I'm not gonna recover it. We're gonna do Ray's song, um, you know. And so he had all that stuff, but then once we had that said. But now we want to tell our own origin story and kind of let make this a new movie for a new generation. Um, then it kind of sorted itself out, and we had those touchstones to go to, and they kind of buoyed us as we were as we were um, putting the movie together. And then we were never dictated anything that we needed in it. Really, we got. I was lucky enough to get real freedom with this. It was more just the. The responsibility I felt to the fans and the people who loved this movie so much, and myself included, having seen it opening night, you know, when it first came out 30 plus years ago. Uh, yeah, we just we were very reverent to it. It was why I'm very happy with what we did. And in the test screenings from day one, every time somebody something would come out that they knew, and especially when any of the cameos people just like lifted out of their seats. They were so happy. And that's when I just felt like, okay, we get, we're getting the math right. And look, not everybody's ever gonna like anything you do. So, but at the same time, if it reaches the people that, that love it and the, and the fact that there are now kids going out at Halloween dressed like Ghostbusters, both the new Ghostbusters and the original Ghostbusters, that was the goal of like, it, I didn't want it to be sort of old versus new. It's just like the Ghostbusters world is this amazing world and let's just, Let's not trap it in amber. I think that was the biggest thing for me. And I also, you know, we know it because we grew up with it, but it's still a movie that's 30 years old. And if you are hanging around any kids, you try to show them a movie from 10 years ago. It's like, that's an old movie. I don't care. So it was kind of like, here's a new movie with new characters. And it made it relevant to them where then their parents can go like, oh, and watch this old one, you know, and, and here's how it all works. And then the kids are playing with the toys. I got pictures of people sent me of kids having the, the new Ghostbusters playing with the old Ghostbusters and they're mixing the cars up. And that's kind of awesome, I think, because the, it, it's back, you know, so... Let's thank Paul Feig. Um, thank you. And Elvis Mitchell, the man. Thanks, you guys.